Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Rue Maritan. This evening we're talking about racism and the Australian media. Is it racist and what can be done about it? Yin Paradis is an Aboriginal, Asian, Anglo-Australian professor of race relations and deputy director at Deakin University's Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. I spoke to Yin on Friday. Can you start by telling me how racism is played out in the media in Australia? We have a media that tends to have very negative portrayals of minority groups and minority concerns. So we're talking about non-white peoples and groups in Australia. Uh, there's been a lot of research on, on media discourse and the way media portrays racialized groups in society. And often it's about just not enough positive engagement with concerns of those communities. Often there's a focus on deviance and crime and problems. So deficit-based approaches to understanding racialized groups and so there's not a diversity of the kind of portrayal that you see for other topics in the media. So that's generally what we know from analysis of, of media discourse in Australia. Is that just the nature of news, do you think, that all news is bad news? That's what gets reported? Well, I guess to some extent, but the, I guess the utility of doing this kind of discourse analysis is really to show that there's a difference. Whatever background level of bad news as the norm, this sort of reporting seems to be worse when we are talking about uh, racialized groups, so non-white minority groups in Australia. I agree that there is a problem with news in general, but it seems to be worse when we're talking about issues of race and even just how race is reported, but how groups of people and their concerns are reported when they're not white. So in 2018, you did a paper on a representation of news related to culturally diverse population in Australian media. Was that the sort of conclusions you found? Yeah, those were the general conclusions of that paper. And there's a number of other researchers who have looked into these issues. And what we're, we're trying to say is that there needs to be a more diversity of reporting when it comes to minority groups and also more involvement, really, more diversity within media, racial and ethnic diversity, so that there can be more understanding of these issues from within the industry. Also, things like when we see news reports about issues that concern certain people, it would be great if we could have more community voice representation from that segment of the population having views on those issues. One of the problems is that minority groups are talked about by others rather than being participants within um, news making process. Let's go back to diversity within the newsrooms. Do, are you aware of research that shows a lack of diversity in newsrooms? Is, is that something this has been studied or quantified? Yes, I think it has. I mean, there is definitely research and there's interest in changing that. I don't have the figures. I'm not sure it has been quantified very well. But we do know that media, like other parts of society, um, politics, business leaders, those sorts of things. So there's been studies on kind of overall leadership 
we know that minority groups are underrepresented within those key industries and the media is one of those key industries that's studied within those sorts of having examinations of, of that sort of leadership in Australia. How do you think having more diversity, ethnic diversity or racial diversity within newsrooms, how would that play out in terms of better coverage? Well, good question. It is necessary but not sufficient, I would say, in terms of changing the way media coverage operates in relation to race and ethnicity. So when you have more diversity in organisations, in theory, you have a, a greater range of perspectives, ideas, worldviews, knowledge bases about different topics within news and different communities about which news is made. And so there's that potential to tap into this very diversity, but of course it depends how much voice those people working in the industry have. So there's a need to have diversity, but also to make sure that people have are empowered to work in the industry to have an impact on news process. More broadly, this is the case for any organisation, increasing diversity is useful, but you have to be open to organisational change and being able to really benefit from the creativity and innovation that comes from diversity. And the way to do that, of course, is to make sure that the organisation is inclusive, that you have a, an interest in understanding what sort of processes within the organisation may be exclusionary or racist or discriminatory and working on those at the same time as trying to change the profile of staff and the diversity amongst staff within the organisation. So it's got potential, but it's not enough to just include people within an organisation. You have to think about how their voices are being heard within there as well. My own experience as a journalist has in a newsroom has been that editors just veto ideas because newsrooms are necessarily hierarchical. What happens is you raise a concern and it would note it, but so I felt like I was I had a place at the table but not a voice at the table. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me and I think that's the point that's missing. I guess organisations have to be motivated to some extent to be interested in these. They have to acknowledge there's a problem and then be interested in solving it and often, yeah, that, that step is missed. There may be interest in increasing diversity within an organisation but as you said, there's a whole other stage which is about the voice and the empowerment within the actual processes of work that go on. So yeah, I think that's a, a big step and it's, in some ways it's the hardest step than just changing the, the demographic profile of an organisation. The other thing you raised in your last answer was about the missing community voices. So there are news articles or news items about a community but the community itself isn't isn't given a chance to engage with that they're not in in the news why do you think that is happening because surely that's part of a standard journalistic practice well it should be i think it should be certainly and should be happening because uh, as you say it is about a, a, a kind of part of standard practice it's hard to say exactly there's probably a few reasons why it's happening i think one of them is that because of a lack of diversity and voice of minority racial journalists and uh, media people there's just not the networks there available sometimes to connect with the right community so people don't have the right kind of context to make that happen or they don't feel that they do and also I think in many ways there's a sense that it's okay to talk about groups and, and there's a sense of a sort of dominant culture that knows best and when we're talking about indigenous communities it seems to be it's okay to get an expert and, and a bunch of white commentators to talk about it and there's no there's no sense that I guess there's valuable perspectives and understandings within communities that need to be taken into account. So I think it's a kind of a prejudice there as well in terms of the need for it. Uh, and also there's a lack of capacity to engage because there's just not the networks in place. Can you tell me about, say, a particularly egregious example that you've noticed recently? It's not that recent, but I think back to the, the Sunrise panel, yeah. uh, which was talking about stolen generations and Indigenous children and ongoing issues with Indigenous children, and there just wasn't engagement with the community, uh, Indigenous community on these issues. And controversial things were said, and that's fine. We want that in the media.
media, but I guess we need that balance sense of controversy from different angles on these topics. So I think that happens often, um, and I notice that most because I'm interested in Indigenous issues in particular, the sense that you don't need to engage Indigenous people, whether they're experts or community members, and there's plenty of both on issues that are important to that, that are really quite central and sensitive for that community itself. I then asked Ian about how we should react when a racist incident plays out in the media, evoking another Sunrise episode from earlier in the year when Yumi Steins accused Kerry and Kenley of being racist during a discussion about Invasion Day protests. I think there's definitely better way to react and, and, and not so good ways to react. Look, you know, I think it was uh, what Yumi was trying to do was a great uh, to to intervene and to call out something that could be improved, but I think often not that useful in our current climate to label things as racist. Uh, it tends to uh, get people offside and it doesn't really improve situations. I think it's very useful to point out and ask questions to say, well, look, you know, I disagree with your view. I think there's another view that we could have on this and I think we could have some other people providing some input that really helps us understand the issue from different perspectives. So I would really suggest move beyond labels, don't even worry about labels and, and get at the heart of, of issues and how they can be better understood to provide more information to media audiences to, to consider and consume. And so that's on one side, there's that. On the other side, when issues are called out, I think that people who run these, these shows need to be open and say, look, yeah, we acknowledge that we could have done better and let's have another show about this and try and draw out more ideas and more diversity and perspective. So I'm suggesting, I guess, that everyone needs to need to be more constructive in journeying together to improve the way we do have reporting on these issues in the media. What I'm taking from what you're saying is that, uh, you know, call, calling it out as racist may well be valid, but it doesn't invite dialogue or it entrenches people in positions. Yes, it does. I think there's a real risk of polarisation and entrenchment and uh, hardening of views, and we really want to uh, avoid that and have a different approach, which is more about dialogue and engagement and discussion. But you'd understand a protest against that. I mean, someone is being racist and you call it that, but it's up to the person who recognises the racism to be constructive. I, I guess there is this expectation that the that the victims of racism or the, the people who have the worst time out of raci- racialized structures are the ones who need to be, you know, the bigger person and improving it when, when the harm is being done to them. about it. In a lot of cases, there's a real role for allies to be involved. You know, the case we're talking about, uh, Yumi was acting as an ally and she wasn't you know, directly the victim of racism in that case. And so there's more potential for allies to step in and help with this, these issues. And I think, yeah, for targets of racism, it is a big ask and I don't think we can expect people to do that. I think that being angry and upset and lashing out when you experience racism is understandable and appropriate. But there's a lot of people who want to help as allies and I think they need to understand that some ways are more effective in terms of that assistance than other ways are are not. You've done quite a lot of work on the health impacts of racism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So there has been a lot of work done and I've been involved in that, looking at what happens when people experience racism, the impacts on their health and really there's a few key pathways that when when you experience racism, first of all, it's not always obvious that it's happened. Probably the biggest impact of racism on health is the racism that people don't even realise is happening. So when you go to hospitals and you get treated in certain ways, that may seem uh, appropriate, but in fact, when you compare that that treatment to to that uh, 
white person gets it if you're an Aboriginal person and you compare across the nation the way that Aboriginal patients are treated versus white patients, there's actually a big difference in them. So obviously this has an impact on your health. If you're missing out on good health care, if you find it difficult to gain a job, if it's difficult to get access to good housing and you have maybe uh, uh, not as much benefit from education because of the way interactions occur and the way people treat you within the system. It's not always obvious. We, we call those the social determinants of health, education, employment, housing, these sorts of things, are really the most important drivers of health. And so racism has an impact there. That's not always obvious. The other way that race impacts on health is the stress of experiencing racism. So we talked already about victims of racism being upset uh, by that and being affected by that. Uh, there's a lot of stress that's caused by racism and that has an impact directly on people's mental health and also physical health. There's evidence of that creating high levels of depression, anxiety, but also things like blood pressure and cardiovascular outcomes. These are the two main ways that racism impacts on health. As an Indian woman, I occasionally encounter what you gave as the first example where I feel like I'm being treated differently to other people. But there's always this sort of this uncertainty in your mind. I feel like it has a bigger psychological impact for me where I'm always like, well, did I just imagine that? It sort of plays on your sense of reality? Yes, there's actually some good studies that show that actually racism that's more ambiguous is more difficult for people to deal with. It creates more stress and has a larger impact on health than racism that's actually more blatant and obvious. Because of this problem, people have an added layer of anxiety about whether or not what has happened to them is actually racism or perhaps something that they did or perhaps it's just poor interpersonal interaction that has nothing to do with race. And these add a whole layer of stress to the experience. This, this is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Welcome back. You're with Communication Mixdown. And this week I'm talking about racism in the Australian media and what can be done to mitigate it. Uh, my second guest is Alana Lentil. She's associate, associate Professor in Cultural and Social Analysis at the Western Sydney University, where she works on the critical theorisation of race, racism and anti-racism. She's also President of Australian Click Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association. I spoke to Alana on Friday. In preparation for this interview, I read a paper you wrote called Racism in Public or Public Racism, Doing Anti-Racism in Post-Racial Times. The paper talks about two forms of racism. Can you explain to us what they are? Yes, so I've used this mechanism of talking about racism in two modes, if you like. So the idea is that we have an official endorsed understanding of what racism is. And this equates real racism or the, the racism that we're willing to accept with events in the history of racism. Barner Hesse, uh, African-American studies scholar, talks about the triptych of the Holocaust, apartheid and Jim Crow as a kind of the officially accepted variant of what racism is. And I call that frozen racism. So frozen in time, if you like, and accepted in the public discourse. And that kind of opens up the suggestion that anything that isn't as grave as any of these uh, historical examples isn't real racism. And we can see a really concrete example with that at the moment 
with groups in the U.S. talking about the asylum detention camps that have opened up on the border and so on as concentration camps. And the response has been, well, you can't call them concentration camps because that would be to equate what's happening today with the history of the Holocaust. And of course, the response to that, again, is that concentration camps don't begin with the Holocaust, that they have a longer colonial history, etc., etc. But because we've all cohered around the idea that real racism is something like the Nazi concentration camp, then the response comes that anything else doesn't quite meet the standard of what has been accepted as uh, officially racism. Now, the other piece of this is the motility, which basically means the ability of race to move around and to be repurposed in various ways by various people. Because racism kind of becomes freed up as this kind of free-floating idea that can attach itself to a variety of circumstances. Because We've been unable to deal in Western societies with the idea of race as what I call a technology of power, right? As something that has really been enacted in order to, to ensure enduring white supremacy and govern human difference. We've reduced it to the one piece, which is racism, which in our minds is something like an attitude that certain people have that leads us to be fearful or to be prejudicial or to have discriminatory behaviors towards people who are different to us. And that part of difference omits from the story that race is something that is invented by Europeans in order to distinguish themselves from non-Europeans in the kind of context of colonial rule, slavery, and so on. So therefore, racism becomes something that anybody can, can be, right? And the argument, of course, in a post-racial idea is that the real racists now are people of color who are discriminating against white people who are beleaguered in their own country. And of course, we can see there the kind of the way in which, you know, being a legitimate member of society is set against being somebody who's seen as illegitimate, in other words, a migrant or a person of color or, or indeed an indigenous person who's seen as not really belonging to the nation. What do you mean by post-racial? The, the debate about being post-race really comes to the fore within the context of the election of Barack Obama to the presidency in the U.S. So we're talking about 2008, although people were already talking about it before then. And the notion was that, well, now there's a black president, so how can you talk about race? The pinnacle of achievement has been reached for black people. And of course, what that does is equate the achievement of one person with everybody's ability to overcome their circumstances. So again, we're reducing race to something about individual behavior, attainment, success, whatever it is. And this really has to be seen as of a piece with what the race theorist David Goldberg calls racial neoliberalism, in which if somebody suffers racism or discrimination, there's nothing structural about that. It's not the state or its institutions that are creating that situation for them. It's because they literally haven't done enough to better their situation. Now, of course, the criticism of that is that the standard that is held out is the average white middle class person. And you're asking people who have been historical victims of racial abuse and injustice to do as well as people who've had every privilege and benefit in society. So therefore, racism, we're seeing, you know, post-race becomes, well, you can't use race as an excuse anymore. You just haven't done enough to better yourself. And of course, post-race is a euphemism for post-racism. In other words, you know, it's not that people who espouse a post-racial attitude don't think racially anymore, because there's a part of that which is a serious discussion amongst race scholars. Paul Gilroy, his black British sociologist of race, has for many years spoken about the fact that we need to think without race, that race is a useless concept, but the end of race needs to be reached, right? So that's 
a piece of the conversation that's not taken into account when people who are opposed to talking about racism use post-rape, because what they really mean is, shut up about racism, I don't want to hear it anymore. This is not something that I need to take into account. Basically discounting people's experiences as in any sense serious. This show is actually about racism in the media, and the, but the reason mm-hmm. why I'm pulling back and asking about wh- what does racism essentially mean or where it emanates from is because the media, of course, they're people in society, so whatever structures we're subject to, we're all subject to them. Mm-hmm. How, how to think without race? I don't think that it's possible to think without race because we haven't reached a situation at which race doesn't count anymore. So you can't fast forward to a world in which people aren't disadvantaged on the basis of how they're racially categorized. That would be a fiction. The analogy that I draw is, for example, with gender. If we want to deconstruct the gender binary because we believe that it straightjackets people into roles that are not good for anybody, that's a great aim, but we can't do it without talking about gender. Like We need to center gender in order to deconstruct it or to dismantle it or to get beyond it. And exactly the same thing with race. But race, because of the frozenness that I spoke about, because of this idea that it was equated with such horrific histories, which is correct, but that the best way to get beyond that is to simply not talk about it, to pretend that it isn't still a factor of our societies, has led to a situation where there's a complete lack of racial literacy in society, and people are extremely uncomfortable about talking openly about race, while at the same time reenacting racial logics, racial ways of thinking, without naming that, without being open about what they're doing. Sometimes it's inadvertent in the sense that people don't actually have the capacity because we don't educate people about it, we don't talk about it in the media, we don't have enough people in the media who are competent, who have experience of racism, or who have who are able to theorize it in a cogent way that can be understood by most people. And so we're all flailing around, thinking racially, but denying that we are. Let's talk about racism as a structure. Can mm-hmm. you explain that? Okay, so I like to talk about race as a structure rather than racism, and there's kind of a a reason that I don't necessarily need to get into, because racism, I think, we equate with ideology, with ways of thinking, with attitudes, with behaviors. And I think that we need to think about race not as a noun, but as a verb, as something that does something, as something that enacts a variety of processes. It takes an institution, a societal process, an economic situation, and racializes it, makes it about race. And this is something that we don't fully understand. So when we think about racist structures or the structure of race, we can see it in action when we think about how the pattern of incarceration in this country, right? So if we look at the simple fact that every single child in juvenile detention in the Northern Territory is Aboriginal, it's not because there's a greater propensity of Aboriginal people to crime per se. But the racial argument is that there is something that leads to Aboriginal people being engaged in more criminal behaviors than anybody else in the population. If we take a step back from that, we can see that the entire institution, the judicial institution of this country is predicated on restricting Aboriginal people's freedom because, of course, being a colonial society, Australia needs to do that in order to constantly reenact its legitimacy. You think of the words of the late historian of race, Patrick Wolfe, he said that, you know, race is inherently an unstable concept. And because it's so unstable, in order to keep going, you literally need to reenact it on a daily basis in all kinds of ways. Constantly needs to be shored up through our institutions, through our discourse.
resources, through the representative structures of society, through the education system. I mean, why are children subjected to so much teaching around Captain Cook and all of this kind of stuff? It's because race needs to be constantly reinforced. Race is a technology of power. Race is a mechanism for ensuring the maintenance of white supremacy. And we see that in schooling and healthcare. For example, in the U.S., studies have shown that black people routinely receive less pain medication than white people do because the assumption is ingrained somehow that they can put up with more pain. So things like this that go unnoticed unless you're on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Media is a reflection of society and doctors are also a reflection of society. In your paper, there's an interesting example that I want to, to talk to you about a little bit of a white woman mm-hmm. racially abusing a Chinese woman on a bus in oh, yes. 2014. Can you tell us about it in your words rather than me? Yeah, so she was a middle-aged woman who got on, I think it was a train in Sydney, end of the day, and she saw an Asian woman and she started really quite spontaneously pulling her eyes in a racist manner and saying, I can't remember all the details of the case. It was quite well known at the time and just screaming racist abuse at this woman. And because this was shared on social media and there was CCTV footage and all the rest of it, she actually was charge and she had to go to court and when she was mounting her defense she said that it was her arthritis that had been playing up that day and I found this absolutely fascinating as an excuse and I started noticing it happening a lot that very often when people are caught in the act of racism it's a very obvious racism here it's not really being contested that what she was doing was racist they claim physical and or mental pain as a reason for their racism which leads to the question Why is your pain, which might be real, I mean, nobody's disputing that, being expressed via racism? And what makes that acceptable as an excuse? And this leads back to how we understand racism as an individual attitude or a bad behavior. You know, this is why we have a situation when somebody's accused of racism in public, they say things like, I'm insulted and hurt and offended that you would call me a racist. I don't have a single racist bone in my body. I'm sure you've heard this being said multiple times. White people are offended by being called racist. And so dominant society has a very individualized understanding of what racism is. And it's the worst thing in the world to be called a racist. It's worse than the racism itself, almost. And so, therefore, the only excuse that people can reach for is, well, I was having a really bad day, so please feel pity on me. It's not about the racist abuse that the woman received. It's, poor me, I was having a really bad day, and somehow it came out as racism. And this is supposed to be an acceptable defense. There's something about a power dynamic going on there. Of course. I mean, if you remember the story of Liam Neeson, the actor... Earlier on in the year, he uh, was promoting his new film and he thought he would tell this story about how when he was younger, a friend of his was raped and he asked her, what was the race of the man who raped you? And she said the man was black and he went out. I think he actually asked her if he was black. Yes, and he went out thinking that he might kill the first black person that he saw. Of course, he didn't do it. There was an interesting observation made at the time that the reason why he, A, thought this, whether he did or not, and B, recounted the story, is that because deep in his psyche or in his knowledge, he knew that this is something that he could possibly get away with. Even if he didn't actually get away, if he had done it and he didn't actually get away with it in the end, historically, white men have gotten away with killing black men for this kind of thing. And so there's a deep knowledge and understanding of this that stays with people and means that they can say things like this. And actually, in Liam Neeson's case, thinking that he's saying something anti-racist, which means that there is an extremely deep problem of lack 
of understanding among dominant white society about what race is and how it affects people. It's not like Liam Neeson read books about white men getting away with killing black men. Right. There is this unconscious absorption. So how to resist? Yeah, it's there in society, this deep knowledge that racial thinking and racist actions are part of society. To tell another anecdote, once I was in a cafe in my neighborhood, my daughter was quite small, and this man, this middle-aged man who I used to see in the cafe, decided he would tell my daughter a racist joke about Chinese people. And so I stopped him in his track, and I said, you're not going to tell my kid this joke. This is really unacceptable. And he said to me something very telling. He said, well, she has to learn to live in this society. And I thought it was extremely telling because the idea is not that white society has to change. It's that everybody else has to change in order to accommodate white society's racism, which is just a fact of life. And if you want to get on here, you've got to just accept it. So... In order to change that, it's not enough simply to... I mean, yes, one piece is teaching people about racism. And as an educator, this is what I spend every day doing. And it does have an effect on people. I do see a transformation in their understanding and so on. But it really will take an enormous transformative work of decades, centuries, in order to have a deep change that needs to happen. Representation is not enough. Diversity is not enough. These are like superficial add-ons, important as they are, but they're insufficient. We need to have a deep questioning of the entire basis on which a colonial society as Australia is established. The first thing that has to happen, but which I doubt we'll see, is a handing back of Australia to its owners. The legacy of upholding colonialism in this country is what we're all participating in, is what's going on. This is what is happening. And on a global level, we're all participating in the maintenance of European supremacy because of the way the global order continues to be structured despite the formal end of colonialism in many places. Not here. So I don't have a solution to that. Any final comments, Alana? I'm usually come across as very pessimistic, and I don't want that to be the case. I do think that what's really great in Australia and many other societies is that there are lots of people thinking together about ways to think differently. And there are a lot of people who are comfortable with assessing their own privileges and the way in which we all participate in maintaining and upholding colonial rule, even if it's not something that we agree with. And I, th- I find that very, very positive. And I think we should all continue in that direction together and find as many opportunities to sit together and discuss about alternatives. That was Alana Lentil talking about how we can discuss, how we can address racism in Australian society. And earlier we heard from Yin Paradise. That's it for Communication Mixdown this week. We're back again next Monday at 6pm. Join us then. Hello, this is Dan Sultan, and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne.